Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins and I'm here with my colleagues Mark Pringle. Hi Barney. And Martin Collier. Hey Barney. For this episode we're delighted to welcome all the way from Philadelphia, I hope I've got that right, Devon Powers. Hi, Devon. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Thank you. We're good. Thanks very much for joining us today. Later, we will hear clips from a White Stripes audio. But first, we're going to talk about your writing and specifically about your book about the Village Voice writing the record. So the Village Voice and its role in the story of music journalism. But first off, Devon, where did you grow up? And what got you into popular music? Yeah, so I grew up in Michigan. I got into music. My mom was really into music. So she was, uh, my parents were kind of like children. Well, I guess they were like in their 20s and the 70s. So very into disco, very into kind of like when funk was becoming sort of pop music. So folks, my mom loved Prince. And I just grew up in a household that was like (laughs) full of music. And once I got older, I started to realize that that love of music that I had could be something that I could, you know, write about because I also liked writing. So, yeah, that's kind of how it went. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What were the first music writers that you remember reading? And what was the first impulse you had to write something about popular music? You know, it's funny. I started writing about music in what is now retrospectively an era, but I did not know it was an era when I started. (laughs) How could you not know? (laughs) Yeah, because we, we, you know, we live in history and I, Mm. I was which is something I'm always having to remind my students of, right? Because they just think they live in time. But um, <laughs> yeah, so I, uh, you know, I, I was, you know, I read Rolling Stone. I read Spin. I read that kind of stuff coming up. I don't think, though, that I really had an understanding that, like, music writers were people that you followed, right? I was like, musicians are people that you follow. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was very into grunge and uh, the Smiths and kind of all of that stuff that was percolating around in the 90s. And then um, when I got to, so I I graduated from college and I moved to New York City in 1999. And my first job in New York City was working for a teen magazine, which currently doesn't exist anymore, but was called Teen People Magazine. So I was writing. It was a a teen version of people. It was a teen version of people. Again, now that I know in retrospect, it was all of the magazines started creating teen versions for millennials, right? Because there were so many young people. But at the time, you know, I'm just in my early 20s and I'm like, here's a teen magazine. I got this job. And it was. It was a little bit soul crushing, you know, did not really add up to my indie sensibilities. It sort of challenged me as a person and I felt a lot of existential crises working there. So I decided, you know, the thing to do was like, I loved music. I should try writing about music. So I reached out to Sarah Zupko, who was then and is still the editor at Pop Matters. At that time, you just shot her an email and was like, hey, I want to write for you. And she was like, okay. <laughs> right? and it was interesting because um, magazines had non-competition clauses at the time, meaning you couldn't write for competitors or even kind of somewhat related publications. But writing on the internet, nobody knew what that was. The labels didn't know, the magazines didn't know, nobody knew at all, including those of us who were writing on the internet. We didn't know what it was. And so I was like, I went to my boss and I was like, can I write on the internet? And she was like, yeah, sure. What's that? <laughs> like, go ahead, do it. Knock yourself out. So I was like, okay, I'll write on the internet. I know that you asked me the question about music writers, but it wasn't until I actually started writing about music that I started to connect to people like Eric Weisbard and Ann Powers Mm -hmm. and kind of that generation of folks. In fact, Ann Powers wrote me an email when I was, oh, probably like 22. And she was like, we have the same last name. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, wow. But um, Her hair's a lot redder than yours. (laughs) There's no familial resemblance. (laughs) But um, But you must have been a generation, two generations below then? I'm probably about 15 years younger than them. Yeah, yeah. So know? interestingly, did and what about your peers? Or didn't you even think that there was particularly a peer group writing about what you were writing about? There was. There was, you know, folks like Stereo Gum was getting started up at the time. So again, some of those people are around my age. Some are a little bit older. So like Chris Weingarten is somebody who I knew. Candy a Crazy Horse was writing for yes. the, for Pop Matters at that time. Yeah. I actually edited her. 
there were folks like uh, Mark Richardson at Pitchfork, right? Pitchfork and Pop Matters mm-hmm. kind of started at the same time. So there was a little bit of a community, but this was all on the internet. You know, yeah. it was all like, like um, Mark Anthony Neal, for example, wrote for Pop Matters. In fact, I think I edited him, which is crazy to me (laughs) because I'm like, who am I to edit him? But it was so fluid. It was so open. It was so easy if you were just a person who liked music. Mm -hmm. And so I had a stable of writers from all over the place and I never met any of them, you know, and it's only now that I kind of see people's names and I'm like, oh, hey. (laughs) Um, And then some of them have ascended the ranks and some of them have, you know, stopped writing altogether. But yeah, that's why I say it was kind of a it was kind of an era. It was a very open time. And mm. it was such a time that like somebody like Ann Powers, who was, again, way more advanced in her career than I was, somebody who I, who I saw on VH1, right? She could write to me and be like, hey, you know, and we developed an email correspondence. Yeah. Based totally on your shared surname. Based <laughs> <totally> <laughs> on our shared surname. <laughs> yes. Um, so we've got about, well, almost 100 pieces by you on RBP, and most of them are Popmasters reviews. Well, what was interesting to me going back to them is that the earliest two, Devon, are about, one is about Colour Me Bad, and one is about <laughs> one is about Little Kim. But then after that, you seem to be carve out a niche, or you seem to carve out a niche, uh, as something of an Anglophile, in my, from my perspective. So there's all these pieces about, you know, Radiohead, Elastica, Muse, <laughs> Clinic, Star Sailor, and even Ocean Colour Scene. <laughs> Plus PJ Harvey. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, Ocean Colour Scene. Did I, um, did I write something about Sleeper? Because I have a friend who's always always making fun of me for oh, really? okay. liking I, I, Sleeper. If you did, I'm not sure. Sh- <laughs> you wrote a lot about you know, badly drawn, drawn boy and stuff. Yeah, I did. And uh-huh. the piece we're going to add of yours on the homepage is a, a review of PJ Harvey live at the Hammerstein Ballroom. Mm-hmm. A week before nine eleven, of course. That that's mm-hmm. interesting to go back to, because of course it reminds me of when she received the Mercury Award mm-hmm. in Washington D.C., literally with the kind of Pentagon smoking out of the window of her hotel room. I mean, should, you remember that very like weird moment? But that's a great. I mean, lots of really great pieces. I mean, would you have classified yourself as an Anglophile at that in that era? In that era, a thousand percent, yes. And it's interesting because okay. Sarah Zupko and her, um, she was also an Anglophile, which I'm not sure if people know, but there was a lot of coverage of British music on Britpop. She even wanted us to use British spellings <laughs> and, and British. Um, and British uh, punctuation, which I'm, I had f- totally forgotten until you said that. That is going too far. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was really, uh, you know, in fact, probably not all the pieces, but I, I think it's that she allowed British or American spellings. That may be what it was. But it was, yeah. So I was definitely, I was so into that scene, really into sort of like post-Britpop which included everything from like stereophonics, you know, Coldplay before they became, you know, U2 wannabes. And, yeah. Um, yeah, they're really and early bad, pieces. Yeah, yeah. And Badly John Boy and Keen and Elbow and Embrace and <laughs> Elastica and all these bands. Yeah. Did were, you come to, did you go to United London, Kingdom? Yeah, at did all? you come to the UK? I did. Yeah. It's this, it's the, London is the city I've been to the most. I think I've been 14 times, something like that. So okay. um, hmm. I would go. As often as I could, and yeah, it was a real, it was a real niche for me. One of the pieces that caught my eye because they have a new album out this week was your piece about the Red Hot Chili Peppers from 2003. But it's about their breakthrough 1991 album, Blood Sugar Sex Magic. And I'm just going to read one of the paragraphs from that because I loved it so much. Blood Sugar Sex Magic is the most important album I own. In one funked out, fucked up, diabolical swoop, Blood Sugar Sex Magic reconfigured my relationship to music, to myself, to my culture and identity, to my race and class. Were it not for this album, I may not have attended the college I eventually chose, may not have ended up on my career path, may not have developed into a rock critic at all. This is hyperbole, yes, 
this is also the truth. (laughs) (laughs) How do those words sound to you nearly 20 years later, Devon? Oh, they sound so adorable. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's so funny. I um if I may digress just a little bit. You um, might. <laughs> one of the one of the ways that I kept myself sane during the pandemic is I was part of an album club, an online album club. So we met together once a week. It was a bunch of, you know, former music critics and music scholars and just nerds. And we met and every week we had a theme and we talked for two hours about, you know, some topic. So it could be like, you know, the album that you or the song that you that reminds you the most of your dad. Like it could be any, anything. And, um, and one of the weeks it was, oh gosh, I cannot remember the theme, but I brought a red hot chili pepper song for which I was mercilessly mocked. <laughs> I have to say, but there is something about the red hot chili peppers, particularly where I grew up in Michigan, where I did not have, you know, I, I really didn't have access to like some of the other things that might've been, electrifying at the time, you know, like I wasn't in Southern California, I wasn't in DC, mm. I wasn't in Minneapolis, I wasn't in, right, yeah. I wasn't in, in Atlanta or the, the in Georgia, right? So there's all these different music scenes happening and they are not happening in Michigan. What's happening in Michigan at the time is like local bands were things like Botfly and Verf Pipe. There was a real like ska punk kind of thing happening. And I was also like, even though I liked music, I didn't really go to shows. So I listened to college radio. I take it you'd entirely, you'd entirely rejected the one thing which was absolutely coming out of Michigan at the time, which is techno. Yeah, I did not. That that did not register to me at all. Right? <laughs> not at all. Not at all. And also, I mean, yeah, I should say a little bit, but not, but not really. You know, there sure. was um, there was an like an industrial techno show on eighty eight point nine, the Impact, the radio okay. station I listened to. But yeah, it was not. Not my scene. Techno had a much bigger, <laughs> and house had a much bigger impact in England than it did in America. I think that's mm-hmm. one of the. Uh, anyway, sorry, carry yeah, on. Yeah, <laughs> perhaps if I perhaps if I had been in Chicago, you know, but like, and I wasn't actually in Detroit either, right? I'm in this little right. tiny suburb, like not not small. I'm in the capital, but it's a kind of a small town. So so anyway, <laughs> like. Red Hot Chili Peppers sounded like the best version of that kind of music. And also, like, you know, I mentioned in that paragraph, like, racial identity, because, like, I had grown up, that album came out when I was in, I I should say, I got into it when I was in ninth grade. I was in ninth grade in 91 and 92. And before that, I had only listened to R&B and rap and hip hop, like, you know, salt and pepper like that kind of stuff color me bad right that's what i was listening to (laughs) and then it was actually red hot chili peppers and black crows believe it or not like two bands that that some people have some really disparaging (laughs) things to say about but um both of those bands to me were like oh white people make rock music and it's related to the music that i know like that was what set it off for me. Okay. And maybe it's, you know, it could have been lots of things for other people, right? It could have been the Rolling Stones or like, but for me, it was those two albums, right? Because they came out right in 1990, 1981. And I was like, oh, I can be a black person and I can listen to this music. And then I just went, boop, and like, you know, and, and, yeah. off, and off I was. Yeah. You, you must have talked to Candy, a crazy horse, about this. We had her on the podcast a couple of years ago. You said you never met any of the Pop Matters contributors. Did you ever meet Candy? You must have done. We have met briefly. Um, okay. We've met at the Experience Music Project, and I think we met a, uh, once or twice in New York. She's not somebody that I know well. Okay. But, yeah, and I know um, her name is escaping me, the woman who wrote the heavy metal book, Lydia. Uh, yes, Linda uh, Doss, I think is her last name. Um, okay. I might be getting that wrong, but yeah, she, she is somebody who I've talked to about these issues as well. Yeah, I mean, I think Candia definitely is a Black Crows fan. If mm-hmm. not, I'm not sure whether she's a Chili Peppers fan. <laughs> and, I mean, given that the Chili Peppers are still going after all these years with this ever changing, you know, lineup of you know guitarists who come back in five years later, right. then then either die or OD and then rejoin again. (laughs) Anyway, John Frusciante is back in in the band. What do the Chili Peppers mean to you in 2022? Um, They are not a band that I have kept up with. Um, You know, they released One Hot Minute in 96. That was kind of the last album of theirs that I paid attention to. 
And I didn't love that album. And then they kind of went through their U2 phase, right? All band, As all bands much pass, if you've been in a band you for, to, if you're for 30 survive. years, you got to you gotta U2ify yourself a little bit. So, um, so when that happened, you know, and that's kind of when they really hit it big, uh, really, really big was like Californication and that kind of stuff. And I know that stuff because it was on the radio, but I, it's not music that I connect to. No. But I still have a very soft spot in my heart for all of their music before 19, like Blood Sugar, Sex Magic and everything before. Mother's okay. Milk and, you know. And they had a song, a Soul to Squeeze, that was, I think, on the Conehead soundtrack that came out in 93. Like, <laughs> I love that song. If it comes on in the car, I stop and I stay oh, in the car, cool. you know. But... Um, <laughs> You know, they're kind of like an ex-boyfriend that was pivotal, but you're glad <laughs> you that. did not stay in that relationship. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to ask you which of the Red Hot Chili Peppers you'd have gone out with. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, probably yeah. better I don't answer Maybe that. none of them. Maybe none of them. <laughs> I got a bad disease from my brain is where I But just to say, we they are the featured acts on the homepage this week, and we have an audio interview from 1985 that Simon Witter did with Flea and the late Hillel Slovak, which is really interesting. And we've also got a Robert Sandel piece. It's an interview with Rick Rubin about how he... I think tamed isn't quite the right word, but I think that's that the sort of Stanford says how Rick Rubin tamed the Red Hot Chili mm. Peppers, or at least made them a little less crazy and wild and easier to record. And of course, you know, he the, the Rubin magic touch did did sort of turn them into a, a mm. giant band, uh, just as the stuff he did with you know Johnny Cash and Tom Petty and so many others. I mean that that touch is 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 indisputable, isn't it? It is. And I think also, you know, I know I've kind of made some jokes, but any band that can stay together, they've been together, what, since 79, I want to say? Yeah, yeah. Like, hats off, you know? Like, that takes a lot of stamina and resilience and fortitude in order. And yeah, I mean, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Though, I know, I mean, I know they're not but... Yeah, but seriously, you know, they lost members of their bands and they went through addiction issues and all kinds of stuff. So... You know, yeah. there's that's no that's no joke. Like to be able to to be able to sustain a no, career like you, that. You're absolutely sure. right, especially in an era when like bands you know, just don't mean what they used to they mean. Mm-hmm. I want to just jump forward a year from there, 2004. You wrote a piece called "Is Music Journalism Dead?" You popped that awkward question, <laughs> and I'm just going to read the first paragraph of Uh-oh. that. <laughs> <laughs> this is a great this is piece. Like when- this is like when mom takes out the family photos and shows yeah. you. Like, yes, it is, Devin. Yes, it is. <laughs> okay, That's great. exactly what it's like. If ever there was a time when writing about music felt utterly pointless, that time is now. I sit at home nitpicking bands, trying to pinpoint the derivations of a sample or riff from the pantheon of music history, and the world burns. Natural resources careen toward depletion. Torture increasingly surfaces an instrument of policy. Short-sighted tyrants, spineless power mongers, and heartless thugs vie egomaniacally dangerously for power. I turn up my MP3 player, that was the era, and tune out the world. <laughs> At a time when I should be taking to the street, I am listening to the street. So how do you feel today? <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose the answer is you, you got so out of that music. racket. Yeah, you got out of that racket. I, I did. I wondered if you, if, if, well, actually, what I wondered is if you wrote that before or after you started thinking about the book that became, or the dissertation that became the book, about the village voice is music journalism dead yeah so if that was 2004 so i started graduate school in 2002 and i was sort of doing music criticism and being a graduate student at the same time and then as with many things i realized oh i can combine these two interests and make them one thing so i started doing research on music criticism which eventually turned into the book writing the record so i had a column at pop matters on music journalism and I would sort of use it to kind of tease out and 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 test my ideas that eventually some of them ended up in the book and some of them ended yes. up in other mm-hmm. other academic writing that I did. So I was kind of thinking about that at the same time. And I was thinking about what's the function of this 
form of writing. And that's happening, you know, 2004 is right at the point where internet writing is starting to be monetized. Before that, there wasn't really money to be made. And then they're starting to try to monetize it. And it's also dropping the bottom out of journalism because like internet writing, you can get paid a lot less. And so writers who are getting a dollar, a dollar fifty, four dollars a word are now writing online for $50 a piece that they would have gotten $2,000 for mm-hmm. not that long ago. So that's kind of what's shaping my thinking as I'm, as I'm writing about that stuff. Was there a moment where you started to really get interested in these figures from a much earlier era, like Alan Willis and Richard Goldstein? When, when did that happen for you? I wrote a paper in 2003 for a class that ended up being the first chapter of the book. And it was a historical paper about the Village Voice, not really about music criticism, just about the Village Voice. And I showed it to one of my professors who I shall not name. He's sort of (laughs) prominent now. And he was like, oh, wow, this is a great idea. This is a great book. If you don't write this book, I'm going to. And I was like, uh oh! <laughs> so it's like I guess I guess this is I guess this is my this is my my book this is my dissertation and like I said I was writing music criticism at the time and I had started doing some research on the Voice and then I realized that all of these people not only the generation of folks that I was talking about before Ann Powers and Eric Weisbard like mm-hmm. Joan Morgan like all of these people had kind of passed through the voice and some of them had gone on to become academics which I found very interesting but also folks like Richard Goldstein and Bob Criscow and then actually Ellen Willis was teaching at NYU at the time yeah. and so she ended up on my dissertation committee in 2005 So that was kind of how that all happened. And she obviously, you know, had some impact on me being interested in various folks and kind of understanding the historical dimensions of the thing that I was interested in. Yeah. I know Martin, like myself, is a massive devotee of the Village Voice. Martin, what was was it about the voice that you remember geeking out on, (laughs) as it were? (laughs) Well, I think, you know, how things were then was that you really, it was very hard to get American magazines. So you, you could get them, but they were very expensive and they were sold in two shops in the centre of London. I don't know where I first saw The Village Voice, but it, but it really struck me as a different kind of paper from everything that was certainly different from the rock press. And I realised it wasn't, it was, a, it was a wide magazine about New York and about America, but, but the music stuff in it was great. They had very good photojournalists they, they, and they used pictures really well. You know, they would offer black and white, all black and white, yeah. often with the edges printed in the true Cartier-Bresson style to show they hadn't cropped the picture. And it was just, it, it was kind of riveting. It had Robert Criscow, who was the first person, I think, who ever graded music. Mm-hmm. So if you got an A-plus from Robert Criscow, you yes, got a D-minus. Professor, it, it, professor, professor Criscow. Criscow. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, uh, so the dean of rock criticism. So that was, that was very interesting. But it had a load of other writers in it, and it covered things that I was really, I just found... I was trying to find my old copies, but I couldn't find them. But I, I would rip out things like this. So this is Professor Longhair. Mm-hmm. And really, you know, you had to kind of struggle to find things, people writing about that here. So, you know, it was that if, if anyone went to New York, I'd ask them to bring me back Village Voices. If I went to New York, it would be the first thing I'd buy. You know, friends would send them to me when they knew that, you know, that I really liked it and they would put certain people I was interested in. So it just became a thing where I, I mean, somewhere... In my loft, I have a, a box of Village Voices. I couldn't find it today. But, yeah, it was really uh, hugely important. Well, I completely concur. I mean, I would put it exactly the same way. And you mentioned Chris Gow, Martin. So for listeners, Devon's book, Writing the Record, focuses more than anyone else. It focuses on Richard Goldstein in the late 60s and then Robert Chris Gow from 69 onwards or 16 at least to 72 and then the consumer culture yeah mark yeah no i mean this is very interesting because um i'm the person who proofreads everything from the 60s 70s 80s and 90s onto rocks back pages and the pleasure of getting richard goldstein on the site is just fantastic mm. partly because he's just such a gorgeous writer just as a stylist i think he's a fabulous writer there is this sort of this, this notion which to some extent your book subscribes to is that rock Criticism was something which evolved 65, 66, 67. It was, it was a process ar- around that time. And I suppose my question to you is kind of what triggered that? Because I can't help seeing 
that I was it Rubber Soul was the first was December sixty five. Sergeant Pepper was mid sixty seven or mm-hmm. um, spring of sixty seven. So it's about eighteen months of the and of course the Beach Boys, Pet Sounds. In some ways, did the emergence of the long form album as a, a piece of work in and of itself was that the thing which really generated the the need to write lengthily about pop music. I mean, I think you would see in Richard Goldstein's writing a change when um, Sgt. Peppers came out, mm-hmm. that he has this uh, this review that is just effusive. And it really kind of just, like I said, that, that style that you're talking about, I feel like mm-hmm. it doesn't really emerge until after Sgt. Peppers comes out in his writing. No, I, I suppose my, my argument is that the, the, the need to write at length about rock music, other than interviews and so on and so forth, just mm-hmm. criticism, was actually a byproduct of the the product itself changing, mm-hmm. I guess, is what I'm saying. You know, yeah. it is the, the 45 RPM single was absolute king. Obviously, Bob Dylan comes up, but Bob Dylan is dealt with by the folk critics who already had significant space mm-hmm. in, like Robert Shelton and New York Times and so on and so forth. But I, mean, I suppose my argument is, that I, for, in a way, I feel that actually it was that people had to find a way of writing about these pieces of work which are just more substantial than a 45 rpm single like mm-hmm. i guess is what i'm what i'm saying i don't know yeah i think that well i mean if the music had not developed past alley oop then there would probably be no rock criticism there I would guess. have been no <laughs> core daddy <laughs> yeah. No yeah. Yeah. yeah i mean core daddy very definitely in a different way from the village voice springs off that notion that you know rock and roll is becoming rock. I think maybe Richard Goldstein might have been the first, you know, writer slash critic to, to reduce rock and roll to the term rock, to use the term rock, signifying something culturally, I suppose, more profound, Wait, perhaps, weighty. more artistic, mm-hmm. weighty. I suppose my slight beef with this is that actually there was fantastic writing about rock way before all of this. But because it wasn't criticisms of albums, it seems to be bypassed. I mean, I think mm-hmm. of Maureen Cleave, who wrote for the Evening Standard in London from the early 60s onwards, she was the one who got John Lennon to say that the Beatles were bigger than Christ, for example. It was her interview mm-hmm. um, that did that. And she's just an extraordinarily good writer. And I sort of feel, especially that often these writers were women writers writing, like Dawn James writing for Rave, which is a teenage girls magazine, 64, 65, 66. They tend to get swept aside. And it's it's the the big alpha male critics who sort of get get this enormous amount of credit, and I'm slightly uncomfortable with yeah, that. Although <laughs> although Ellen Willis certainly has very yes. high standing. Yeah, no, but I'm in talking the about the, the, the before and after. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I think there has been more work done um, to try to unearth people like Jane Scott and Lillian Roxon and yes. uh, Gloria Stavers and folks who are writing in the teen press. Yeah. But also, you know, to your point, it's sort of a, it's like the exception that proves the rule in a way, because those magazines didn't allow, like, there wasn't the same kind of writing that they were doing, right? It's not to say that it wasn't good. It's just to say that it hadn't, it hadn't tipped over into what we recognize as rock criticism now. And some of that is because of how we do history. And some of that is because of the limits or the requirements of the publications they were writing in. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? So, yes, yeah, so, I mean, I suppose one thing I'd say about that is actually that certainly that I think Maureen Cleave and Dawn James and Rafe were writing very seriously, even though they're particularly Dawn James's audience were teenage girls. I, I've quoted this before on the podcast is she interviewed Eric Clapton in 1965 after he had left the Yardbirds before he joined John Mayle. And she really got to how depressive he was. I mean, she was right. writing about this man's difficulty with life in a teenage girls magazine. Mm-hmm. So, you but know, in uh, my yeah. mark, that, that they would never, I mean, on the other side of the pond, no one would have known these. No, sure. They might have heard of Maureen Cleave after the whole yeah. bigger than Jesus scandal sort of broke, yeah, but, sure. but no one would have read Dawn James. Mm-hmm. In New no, York I, City. I just, I'm just thinking that, that, that in the overall history of music writing, yeah. that that pre village voice, pre crawdaddy stuff has, I think has been ignored. Mm-hmm. You know, whichever side of the pond it's from is, yeah. is, 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 you know, what I'm saying. But yeah. anyway. And it was a fascinating, I mean, from from our point of view as the sort of archivists of Rock's Back Pages and co-creators of the thing, it was very, very educational and, and yeah. interesting to read your your account of 
the founding of that magazine, Norman Mailer's involvement in it. I was very amused that in 1960, there was a, an article about the menace of folk. That was fascinating <laughs> to me. Um, and just, uh, and also just you go into why Greenwich Village itself represented such an important thing in American culture. That yeah, that chap's a, fantastic. A bohemian yeah. kind of intellectualism. You know, it took a village, didn't it, literally? <laughs> you know, and it just, yeah, as Martin said, it would be the first thing I would do when I went to New York to interview somebody would be to buy the... There were always so many incredible gigs happening, like downtown. So that was the first thing you'd do. Oh, my God, Bobby Bland's <laughs> playing at the Lone Star or whatever it might be. And it just was so cool. It was a different kind of writing. It seemed so much smarter and wittier and and sort of and kind of insiderish, I think, yeah. you know. Mm. And quite so, severe in the case of Chris Gow. Devin, you've met Goldstein, haven't you? you I have, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, what did you make of him as a, as a personality? I, I'm as a, I think he's, as I said, a marvellous writer, but what did you make of him as, as a chap? I mean, he's what we call here a mensch, you know? Yeah. He's just such a good such a good man. I haven't seen him in years. I think the last time I saw him was 2014. And he's yeah. probably in his... Because he's probably close to eighty now. Yeah, I he, he say. must be. Uh, he sends his best regards, by the way, because so I happened to get an email from him earlier today. Oh, and so he said, "Say, say hi to Devon." He's me. such a wonderful person. Really good guy. He does seem. Yeah, he seems. Kind. To be, I mean, what did you think of his his memoir, his autobiography? Yeah, another beautiful. little piece of my heart. I thought it was a yeah. fabulous piece of work. Yeah, terrific book. Yeah, yeah. In in this connection, just as an aside, I wanted to note that we lost one of our contributors this week, John Swenson, who was a mainstay of Crawdaddy itself. We've already talked about Crawdaddy. He didn't start writing Crawdaddy in 1966, but I think he would have been writing for Paul Williams by 1970, something like that. So we've included this piece he wrote on the 10th anniversary of Crawdaddy's founding. So from 76, he basically tells the story of how Crawdaddy came about. And But he's we've got a lot of really great pieces by him. He wrote for The Voice. In fact, we're including a piece he wrote for The Village Voice in 1973, which is a review of the Watkins Glen yes. show in upstate <laughs> New York. But he also, he wrote a lot about black music and never more so in the last few years when he was based in New Orleans and was writing for Offbeat. So he wrote all about all the great, New Orleans artists. And he was also a sports writer. He was a horse racing correspondent what? for the New York Post. I know. <laughs> I, I, I'd forgotten this and I checked his RBP bio. And yeah, he was he was a sort of serious sports writer. So I mean a, a great character and uh you know, a great loss. So just yeah. noting noting that. I mean, so you mentioned Michigan. Uh we didn't really talk about cream, but I thought it might be a good thing to, to talk about a Detroit duo called the White Stripes, Mark. So maybe <laughs> never, um, never heard of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were too busy listening to Call Me Bad. <laughs> um, uh, do you want to tell us about the audio, Mark? Yeah, yeah. It's Ara Robbins. Backstage at some New York gig in 1st of June 2001. It's very noisy, a lot of background chat. And it's mostly about sort of, what them playing live and you know the things that have happened to him like his shoes falling off on stage and you know, things like that the outro talks about ray davis coming to a show they played a couple of weeks before in new orleans and how it completely freaked them out dislike of the rock press usual sort of stuff you get from rock musicians when they've been interviewed by the rock press <laughs> <laughs> and uh, talked about being overhyped by journalists this is the a, a clip from this and if you can make out what's being said you're a better person than myself Everybody knows everything that's ever been done. Like, 
it just makes people so, you know, like, ready to knock things down, ready to shoot it off, or whatever. But yeah, I mean, anything, like, if you were, if you were a completely original band, like, for some reason, you were just a completely original band, you had a whole new idea, would it go over well? Oh, that's right. No. I don't think it would, you know, because I think people would just be like, oh, this is, this is Devo, right. or this is, you know, whatever. <laughs> oh, this is Devo. Well, this is Devo. No one ever said that about the White Stripes. <laughs> <laughs> no, we said that they were sweet, didn't we? When we saw them uh, in London, Barney, we decided that Jack White sounded exactly like Steve Priest from Sweet. He'd definitely been listening <laughs> to Steve Priest. <laughs> he talks about being in the sights of major labels, not wanting to have that, but them, them turning up. He talks about great shows, about bad shows, hating live shows sponsored by corporates. We'll play another clip. He talks about his tricky relationship with the blues and his loathing of being typecast. Well, I'm finding it harder to be a gentleman every day. All the matters that I've been taught are slowly died away. We never wanted to make the same record twice. And, uh, yeah, we didn't want to get pigeonholed. There's like, say, like, there's a thing, you know, like, I've never, I've never, you may be hard to believe, but I've never heard a John Spencer Blues fortune album. I've heard songs here and there, but I've never listened to an album. And people were saying that about us, trying to find a box for us and say, oh, new John Spencer or something like that. And, but again, like, like I was saying about the blues, just, it just gets uncomfortable to just be, uh, this is our thing. Look at uh, like, look at this. This is what we're doing. I get so bored so fast with that. I get bored. But if I had the door open for you, it wouldn't make your day. Yeah, sure. Not influenced by John Spencer at all, Jack. We're going to believe that. I mean, all those bands basically rip off of Hound Dog Taylor and the House Rockers. So let's kind of get a bit of perspective going here. Just hear Meg at the beginning of of that second clip there. But she's obviously sitting... I mean, A, Jack is a very dominant personality and it sounds like Meg is, is sitting too far away from the mic. It's a shame because it would been really nice to hear her voice. Anyway, they are both sitting there being interviewed by Ira. Sorry, back back to you, Devin. Well, I was going to say this: these clips are making me remember a couple of things. One, when the White Stripes came out, they were totally a gimmick. They seemed like a gimmick. From sure. my station in like the New York indie rock scene, they seemed like a gimmick. And mm-hmm. were they brother and sister? Were they married, mm-hmm. right? They were always mm-hmm. wearing white and red. red, you know? So I think a lot of people sort of recoiled from them because of that gimmicky part. Yeah. Despite the fact that I think Jack White is a is a fantastically talented musician, you know, and in retrospect, that music sounds different than it sounded at the time. But the other thing I was going to say is that I think he makes some really good points because the way that it reminds me of when Billie Eilish, like, didn't know who David Bowie was or something like that, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, you can be influenced by things that you've never heard mm. because no, it's I- all in the, like musical either yeah. you know i completely agree but i don't think that's the case with him i think he's too much of a scholar of what he's been doing to be able to get away with that argument mm. you know <laughs> and i mean i have to say what i i like the white stripes certainly their first two or three albums i thought were really really interesting i like her as a drummer and i, I never understood why she was absolutely out and out condemned by so many people i think she's a really interesting drummer very good powerful drummer but the first thing I thought was John Spencer Blues Explosion. Absolutely the first thing I thought when I heard them. And it is about that stripped down, no bass guitar, just guitar and drums sort of feel, uh, which was Hound Dog Taylor and the House Rock. But having, <laughs> having said that, I mean, he has done an awful lot of very different things mm-hmm. since The White yeah, Stripes. and of, all of them less good. Well, I, just, I don't know. I think he's, I still think, I think he's hugely talented and, and yeah. willing to take huge risks. I mean, the new single, which, so he has a new album out, first of two, uh, maybe three solo albums that are coming out this year. There's, there's one coming out next week called Fear of the Dawn, and it's lead track, which, which I listen to on Spotify. It's called Heidi Ho. It features Q-Tip, and it's just, <laughs> it's just insane. I mean, it's hilariously <laughs> insane yeah. piece of music. Anyway, that's why we are featuring 
this comparatively early audio interview with with Jack and Meg. Yeah, it is. It's, oh, so it's a nice bit at the end when Meg talks about her favorite drummers and her drum kit. Yes, so we, we, we can find out all about Meg. She drum mentions kit, Mo Tucker and someone else that I couldn't hear who the other drummer was. No, I couldn't hear that either. Mo Tucker does make sense. Mo, I, Mo Tucker I, definitely I, I makes sense. So actually, you know, Meg always reminded me more of John Bonham than anyone else. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, you know, yeah. uh, uh, with some of that weight and power, you know, it's, it's not to be mm. not to be sneezed at. So, Devon, did you see the White Stripes in New York? You didn't. I see did it. not. No, they were like I said, they were a band I kind of avoided because I okay. was more into the like Interpol, liars, like that part of the that part of the scene. So I loved Interpol. Mm-hmm. Still love those Interpol records. Did you? So that that. Uh, oral history of that scene meet me in the bathroom i m- imagine must have spoken to you i actually have not read it but oh, maybe okay, it well, will when i t- <laughs> yeah, yeah we're dragging you back into that era <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah. i will i will say that the other music documentary which i'm not sure if uh, folks have seen it's about a music no. a, a record shop in oh um, the, the other the other record store that was when i realized that my 20s were an era an era that is that I mean obviously it's over but I was like oh wow people look at this and they see these things that I was doing and they think that's history right? yeah. <laughs> like, you know yes Martin did you ever go to other music in New York no I don't think You're, I did I, okay no no because that's that's the story it's about right yeah it's, yeah it's based around that and I mean I remember thinking in a way that I hadn't felt since I was like 14 going in there I was just like I am just not cool enough to even enter this <laughs> shop you know and they're going to find me out in two seconds. So it was it was like the hippest record store on earth, wasn't it? It definitely was. Yeah, no, I, I was always looking for bootlegs. So Bleaker Bob's in the village was uh, was my go to record shop. Yeah, of course, of course. Well, anyway, so there we go. White Stripes. Mark, you and I did go and see them, didn't we? Saw That's them, what like, I'm saying, yeah. yeah we did, we yeah, decided was... that they, they were the sweet rather than anyone else. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I really That's enjoyed the glam element to the yeah. to, to Jack. Well, it's just he, he, he sung, everything he sung sounded like a line of, you don't know what to do from <laughs> Hellraiser. <laughs> um, but it yeah. was, no, it was, it was... It, it was memorable. I remember it as a show. Mm. There's so many shows I don't remember. The fact that I can still clearly remember that shows says tells you something about you know that they were good. Yeah, they, they, yeah. They I, I remember it's a pretty great show. Yeah, yeah. So we have to. No sooner we finished what last week's issue then the news came through that taylor hawkins had died and so we have added an audio interview with taylor hawkins from i don't know is it late 90s by stephen rosen where he's actually yes. talking not about food fighters but about a side project called uh, the coat coat tail riders that's right yeah yes. yeah who yes. are a sort of kind of 60s influenced kind of group uh, I t- I'll take your word. Yeah, for I mean, it. I've, I've never listened to the coattail riders, and I can't say I listen a lot to the Foo Fighters. But obviously, this has been a big, big, big story and a very sad story. I mean, he 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 sounds interesting and, and very nice in the in the audio interview. And reading what Dave Grohl says about him, about how close their relationship and how big and important part of the, the Foo Fighters he became. Yes. You know, the, the, whatever you think about the Foo Fighters, there's a lot of respect there, and I, I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, I read, so there is also a piece we're adding, and I think it sort of, it makes it sound almost like there was this interplay between Grohl and Hawkins that was roughly analogous to kind of Bonzo and Jimmy Page. Yeah, They would kind of, yes. you know, sort of duel with each other and spar off each other and... um I mean, I, you know, I will confess that Foo Fighters never sounded remotely as interesting or original as Nirvana, just a two sort of down the line kind of big stadium rock yeah. band for me. And Devin, you'd probably pretty much stop writing about popular music by the time Foo Fighters had had exploded onto the scene. Yeah. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to ask for a sound bite. <laughs> I, do, I do not have one. <laughs> um, actually, at, at this point, I'd also like to mention the very recent, as in yesterday, passing of Donald Shaw, a.k.a. Tabby Diamond of the marvellous Mighty Diamonds, shot to death in 
Kingston, Jamaica, sitting outside his home, reasoning with his his friends. Their album and the single Right Time was certainly for me one of the great albums of sort of 76, 77, at a time when Roots Reggae was the soundtrack much more than punk rock. Punk rock hadn't been recorded as such. So what we collectively were listening to, a lot of what we were collectively listening to, was Roots Reggae. And that's absolutely Roots Reggae at its best. Sly and Robbie on the rhythm section, these sweet, sweet voices, heavily influenced, as the Congos and the Whalers originally were, by people like the Impressions. Very strong, you know, American R&B yes. vocal group thing. Uh, and it's it's sensational stuff. So, you know, get on to uh, whichever streaming service is <laughs> your choice and and, mm. uh, 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 and find the Right Time album by the Mighty Diamonds and listen to that and think about this this guy who's just really tragically shot to death yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we, we're making freely available the late Penny Reel's NME review of Right Time, which really does sum up everything that was wonderful about about that record. I think he uses the phrase sweetly stoned somewhere in, <laughs> somewhere in it. But it's, I mean, it's a beautiful piece of writing as all, as all Penny's writing yeah. about reggae was. So that's a very sad story to come out of Jamaica. I mean, sort of all too, all too familiar. Yet another story. Yeah. major figure from Jamaican music shot dead. Yeah. Devon, what took you into academia and your particular field of research? So when when did you when did you grow up and just leave music journalism behind you? <laughs> what happened? I mean, there's a little bit of another part of the story, which is that I ended up leaving Pop Matters, I want to say 2005. Mm-hmm. And a couple of us tried to start a new venture that we okay. didn't end up getting off the ground. And then, you know, it was just, you know, life happens and things. I moved out of New York, etc. I got an I got a academic job that was in 2008. And that's kind of when, you know, it, it also is like, you know, the I think a lot about when the store Other Music closed, which was in 2016. Um, and even though I wasn't living in New York City anymore, every time I would go back to New York, I would go and visit that store. So all of that kind of eclipsed um, or like my relationship to, to popular music was changing as I was, you know, becoming a professor and working towards tenure. And I will mention that there was a... Um, Simon Frith uh, retired in in 2014. Um, There was a big conference at the University of Edinburgh that I went to that was kind of in his honor. And there were academics there. Bob Criscow was there, um, a bunch of other kinds of folks and luminaries. And I kind of think of that as like, Simon Frith said goodbye to, you know, his career as an academic. And I kind of was like, okay. This is this is how you you know this is how you ride off into the sunset of writing about music and I kind of stopped at that point. That makes sense. Probably a wise decision because, as you yourself said, it's a much harder environment for music writers anyway. If, even if you wanted to write about music, the environment out there is yeah, amazing. it's definitely hard to make money from. Although mm-hmm. those things are changing now, right? Like you can yeah. make content instead of make. You know, writing is just another form of content and yes. there are music criticism influencers and YouTubers who have millions of subscribers doing video reviews and things. So yeah. the ecology of the whole thing has changed dramatically. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, in hand in hand with the distribution methods and everything else, it's just the entire environment, both writing and the production and the promotion of music and everything to do with it's changed so much in the last 15 years, yeah. Mm. yeah. I just wanted to mention, by extraordinary coincidence, because you teach at Temple University um, in Philadelphia, and this very morning we got a request for a quote from Temple University to subscribe to Rock's oh, right? Pages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if they accept the quote, they've got to accept the quote. Um, <laughs> but uh, they've trialed the resource, as they say. And so, you know, you may be able to access Rock's Pages through the university's portal 
as well yeah. as as well as as a contributor to Ross yeah. I just I just um, heard about that from a colleague actually who and the okay. librarians are letting letting folks know that it's now it's up oh, and great. running so oh that's fantastic that's well, there fantastic. we go it just it just was a a very neat piece of synchronicity yeah. so look talking about the resource that is Rocksback Pages Mark would you kindly tell us about the pieces that have caught your attention uh, uh, this past fortnight absolutely and Devon do chip in a Anything comes up in this that you you got something Sorry, to say no, about? There are no color me, color me bad stories. Okay. But okay. Jump in anyway. <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> but there is a Richard Goldstein story. But there is there is a Richard Goldstein story. Yeah, going back to last week, Maureen Cleaver, who you spoke about earlier on Alexis Corner's Blues Incorporated, this evening started in 1962. So this is her writing about the nascent British blues boom, just as it was starting, and she says. Quiet and well-spoken, they talk about rhythm and blues the way people on the third programme talk about Schoenberg. Which <laughs> is just like, the third programme, by the way, is the classical music, was the old BBC classical music station. On, you know, nice translation, about... Mark. We needed that. <laughs> well, you know. Yeah, yeah, the, third, sure. the third programme. <laughs> the third programme. Yes. I, I love that. I just think that's, that's, that's so funny. And that actually goes back to what I was talking about, people... You know, writing well about pop. Pete Johnson, LA Times writer, who I'm, I mean, kind of insisted he came on board of, about uh, a couple of months back, and it's one of the best things that's happened because he's just terrific. Interviewing Paul Revere and the LA Times in '67. Paul Revere comes over as an unbearable twat of the first <laughs> order, and he's really up pleased himself. He says, "We sell souvenir books, hats, buttons, posters, and we're going to get some Raiders charm bracelets." Something in every price range. <laughs> uh, just, lately, there's been this big thing. The Beatles started it to be creative. For it's seldom you saw a creative rock and roll band. <laughs> now, this is Ed McCormack, who again has come aboard, well, the, the late Ed McCormack. We've been allowed to use his stuff on disco in 1975. It's difficult because the language that he uses... Well, let me just read the first paragraph. Oh, God, be careful. Yeah, well, <laughs> he says, At Le Jardin, Le Jardin, the music commands a snaking daisy chain of dancers through pelvic puppet paces as the atmosphere grows heady with the adrenaline incense of brute cologne and a thousand amylnitrate poppers, each lending its queasy aphrodisiac rush to the whole mind-boggling, switch-hitting group grope going out there on the floor. Disco. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, he interviews people. There's a guy called one of the dancers, Tony Pagano. He says, My old man doesn't understand that dancing is not a tight ass, uptight sex role scene. Another dancer called Hollywood DeRusso says, I make a decent salary, honey, but at least three quarters of it goes for rent, and the rest I spend in discotheques dancing my cute little tush off. It's fantastic. I mean, it's just it's a really good, it's a, it's a great 1975 writing about two about, years about before disco. Saturday Night Fever, isn't it? Two yeah. years before yeah. Saturday Night Fever. So, so you know, I, 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 and Emma Cormack is just a fabulous writer, just as a stylist. I think he's absolutely terrific. 1977 Record Mirror, Teddy Pendergrass, being identified by Robin Katz. He says, I can't, we're talking about disco. I can't believe in singing about going to a disco and dancing and sweating and catching a cold. That's not my lifestyle. <laughs> I just stood in front of the mic and sang my heart out. We finished in one take. That's him on Don't Leave Me This Way, one of the great records. Don't leave me this way I can't survive Can't stay alive Without your love Robert Shelton sees the Kingston Trio. This is a live review. from This is this week from New York Times in 1960. It says where once they used to bound on stage as if headed for the beer keg and pursued by the Dean of Men. At last night's first concert, the group seemed, by comparison, almost sedate. And it's a regretful piece about basically the commercialization of folk, to all intents and purposes. Reminds me, we had had Joe Carducci in the last episode talking about watching the Kingston Trio on TV, singing Tom Dooley, and being very, very sort of, very traumatised by the thought they were actually going to be hanged live on television. <laughs> Which comes from the guy who started SST Records. It's quite yeah. something, isn't it? <laughs> OK, another little Maureen Cleave piece. This is great. Little Richard's very first visit oh, to yeah. England, 1962. He says, I'm no longer the king of rock and roll. I'm the world's greatest soul singer. A soul singer sings from the bottom of his heart. He loves souls. He seeks souls. And he says... I want all the kids to come and see me because I am something to see and to hear me because I am something to hear. (laughs) 
It's, it's interesting. Just, I mean, it's yeah. fascinating to me that he's using he's the, the word, word soul, soul. I know. In 1962. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He says, I pray for Europe. I pray that God will put a little bit of Jesus into the hearts of that guy, Khrushchev. Well, that's that's weirdly timely, <laughs> isn't it? From Khrushchev to Putin, my God. Mm. Yeah. Devin, you quote this uh, this article itself in, in in your book, which is Richard Goldstein on Steve Paul, uh, the Village yes. Voice, nineteen sixty seven. Steve Paul says you're in a centre man when you're mentioned in other people's columns. <laughs> there are old woman reporters from the Times. I'm a nice kid, and when they call me a twenty three year old tormented genius, I know I reacted groovy enough. Truth and groove went out, right, man? <laughs> <laughs> it's a yeah. fascinating piece because, as you say in your book, that it's 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 quite tough on Steve Paul, who's who's a, a, a hustler and a mover and a sh- uh, whose disco was originally a really uptown high class joint, and he was having to reinvent it as a hippie place because he, <laughs> the, the posh people stopped going to his disco. <laughs> <laughs> you never met Steve yeah. Paul, but a fascinating character. He was sort of the kingpin of like New York rock, Neither. wasn't he, in the late mm. late sixties. Rolling Stone, 1970, Robert Greenfield, another fabulous writer. Mm-hmm. This is about, uh, well, I don't know, if, Martin, if you went to this, Canned Heat playing a free concert in the park in London, no. 1970. No. I went to that that concert. So, uh, And he, he's basically spending the, the week, the day, hanging out with Bob Height before the concert and after the concert. Oh. And it's that Al Wilson had died the week before. Go and on. so he's him talking about Al Wilson. So I'm, I, I first met him in 65, and he was... Weird, funky, funky, not taking care of himself, his clothes or his hair. I mean, reading this, it's really apparent that Olson was very much in the autistic spectrum. I think mm. there's absolutely not a shadow of doubt about it. Uh, but that, 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 that gig, one of my memories of that is that Eric Burden and War were also on the thing. So it was the, certainly the first time I'd even heard of War, let alone seen them. The wind was blowing so hard that afros were blown from side to side as you know in in the gale, and Eric Burden poured a bottle of wine over the front uh, over the photographers in the pit while singing "Spill Wine." Weirdly, my Bob Height looked out my dad after that show. Yeah, yeah, found him in the in the pub that he favoured. Uh, <laughs> because he had ordered records from. Um, from Dobell's, where my dad was running the mail order bit of Dobell's, so he'd been sending all these. American blues records to California from London, oh, wow. which is, makes, you know, was kind of yes. ridiculous. That's why B.B. King would come to Dobell's because he could get records he couldn't get easily in America. Yeah. There was such yeah. a kind of scene here of people. Well, they were real blues scholars, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were obsessed with ancient 78s, like yep. Tommy Johnson and so forth. Yeah. So that makes sense. But I hadn't heard you tell that particular <laughs> that's story. A, that's that's yeah. a very good story. Yeah, yeah. 1972 NME, Roy Carr interviewing Curtis Mayfield. Curtis Mayfield says, you've got to remember that songs are the overall momentum of the feeling of the masses, especially in minority areas. He also says, those things affect everybody, you know, self-respect, civil rights, everything that can make a person's life less of a hassle. This is immediately upon the release of Superfly and obviously his magical soundtrack to it, magical, very different soundtrack to the movie mm. soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Lastly, this is taking us way up to date. This is 1994, John Harris interviewing Oasis. This is Oasis, their first single had just come out, so this is very early Oasis. And uh, Liam has shout, been hot. Ranting about his brother, Noel. He says, I hope one day there's a time when I can smash the fuck out of him with a fucking Rickenbacker right in his nose, and then he can do the same to me, which is how the band ended. What was it? (laughs) Six years later. Prophecy. (laughs) Precisely in that way. Yeah, I believe Liam broke a guitar over Noel's head backstage, and that was the end of the band. So I thought it was quite nice having a problem. What about you, Barney? What have you got? Well, I'm just going to speak. I'm not going to quote from anything because we are running out of time, but just these are the things that I've either added or caught my attention. We have of late been doing transcriptions of our audio interviews. It's a long-term project, but we've probably done about 30 to 40 by now. And the one that I uploaded this week, I didn't do the transcribing, but was a 1974 interview with Mark Boland by uh, John Pigeon. And it's just just full of rather fey recollections <laughs> from the former Mark <laughs> Feld. It's funny. There's a piece, given that we've talking, been talking so much about rock critics and and the music press there's a piece you added mark from 1992 
by Andrew Bailey, who oh, yes. was the guy that Jan Wenner put in charge of the UK Rolling Stone. So it's his reminiscence of the Rolling Stone office and the, the, the UK edition of the Rolling Stone of Rolling Stone here in the UK. He talks about a person called Jesus, who yes. nearly all of us will be familiar. Jesus is this very flaky bloke who had a tendency to Sorry, take... there's the son of God, wasn't he? No, in this case, no. Uh, you know, and the Beatles were definitely bigger than this Jesus. <laughs> They're definitely bigger than this <laughs> Jesus. Um, he's a, a young man who's had a tendency to take his clothes off at concerts and sort of swinging his bits around in front of you while you're trying to listen to the Edgar Broughton band or whoever is on stage. So uh, it is quite interesting to see him quoted in this piece of turning up at their office and sort of... Oh, does he turn... Not naked, he, presumably. But, no, well, he's, they don't mention that, so I assume okay. he's fully clothed. Oh, how, long did, how long did Rolling Stone last here at the English edition? There was the, the never really was one. Oh, I think there was. Paul, Paul Gambaccini wrote for it, didn't he? And yes, absolutely. he did. Absolutely. But the, 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 I believe there were some printed versions. Right. Other people say there weren't, and I haven't been able to kind of get this. The, the idea was um, Mick Jagger was going to finance it. They actually got offices, they got all kinds of stuff, and they just blew the money, I think, on drugs and drink and things like that. And when I pulled the plugs mm. pretty briskly. So. Do you remember that very funny Charlie Gillett audio interview where he talks about Mick coming in to interview him as the prospective editor for the UK Rolling Stone. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. Charlie was just so pissed off by him and unimpressed by him. He said, I, don't, I don't even want to be the editor of the Rolling Stone. <laughs> anyway, moving on from there, just quickly, 1997, also Rolling Stone, as it happens, a fabulous Chris Heath piece about the prodigy who had just got to number one with The Fat of the Land and I think Firestarter also got to number one in America. So they were, it was that moment when the Prodigy were like massive in the States. I'm sure you, you remember, Devon. Anyway, it's a great Chris Heath encounter, both in, I think, in, in Europe, possibly in Essex as well. He goes to Essex to meet Keith Flint and um, the main Prodigy dude, whose name, <laughs> Liam, Liam, another Liam from that era there's a nice piece it's actually sleeve notes by kieran tyler for a compilation of tony hatch productions <laughs> um which okay. amused me if only because i really love downtown by petula clark when you're alone and life is making you lonely you can always go downtown there's a piece by Michael Simmons, who was recently on the Rocks Back Pages podcast. It's a really nice piece for HuffPo about Karen Dalton, who is becoming more of a cult figure with each passing year. Our next podcast guest is going to be Vashti Bunyan, if all goes according to plan. So I've added a Jamie Atkins review of the last album she made, I think the last album she ever planned to make, in 2014, Heart Leap. So... We may ask her about that. She has a memoir coming out very soon, which I've read, which is really, really good. So I'm looking forward to talking to Vashti. Richard Williams is a bitchery for the extraordinary Jack Good. I mean, what? A, mm. you read this and you think, what a remarkable Amazing. life. Yeah. I mean, just for, so from kind of, oh boy, to like painting icons in New Mexico and all points in between. He, he, I mean, he also, he kind of invented a version of pop TV, mm. both here and in America. Shindig yes. was his show. Yeah. Shindig in America, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He put together, pretty much was responsible for the Shindogs, you know, with Leon Russell and co. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's a, um, a By the way, just mentioning Tony Hatch is that, of course, he wrote the Neighbours theme tune. And once I actually sat down with a calculator and worked out what his weekly royalties were from the showings of Neighbours alone on the BBC. <laughs> it was monstrously big. Yeah. Yeah. You know he was because, guessing that. He wasn't you know, a one-off yes, yeah, Oh, absolutely. No, in those days, absolutely. Okay. And you got £70 a minute. And given that the show was repeated twice a day, six days a week. Nice deal. That's a lot of money. <laughs> Sweet deal. Huh? Okay, the very last thing I'm going to mention is a piece by uh, Irina Strace, who recently, well, last year, 
came into our office to do some research, uh, as Never recommended left. by yes by John Ingham, <laughs> and was extremely helpful for 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 a number of months, and may end up working with us. And she's written a lovely piece about the Descendants. She wrote this last year, and since again we had Joe Carducci on, we talked a bit about Descendants in the last episode. It's a really nice piece that she wrote about this band that were on SST and were were you know close friends of like black flag and the Minutemen and and all of that lot and we we just we didn't have any piece about them before apart from the joe carducci piece we added so anyway lots of really really good stuff on rbp lots of new writers that are coming in it's just ever expanding universe isn't it mark (laughs) an ever expanding ecosystem yes sadly yeah (laughs) so Devon, is there anything you would like to say before we sign off? Anything I'd like to say? <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, yes. I profoundly I mean, regret joining yeah, this podcast. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure how to answer that question. <laughs> no, just thank you for having me. It was, uh, what, is, what, was what, what are you yeah. currently engaged on? I mean, you're, you had a book called On Trend about future forecasting. It came out three years ago. Are you working on a new book? I am not really working on a new book. I mean, I'm sort of in between projects and trying to figure out what the next thing is. But yeah, I moved from writing about music to writing about the future. So that's that's my terrain now. Um, <laughs> writing about the future? Yeah, yeah now yeah. I write about the future. It's an invaluable yeah. skill set. You can talk about the future. You could yeah. uh, forecast the future of Rock's Back Pages. That, that would be quite helpful. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a fee for that. So. Yeah, I think there probably is. <laughs> we can work out a deal, I'm sure. Okay. No, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, I mean, so. if anyone listening has the same interest we have in the, the history of not just music, but writing about music by extraordinary people like Richard Goldstein. You know, do get Devon's book, Writing the Record. Yeah. Sometimes the village voice and the birth of rock criticism. Mm. You know, it's it's really, really fascinating stuff. And yeah, well, thank you for joining us so much, yeah, Devon. Thank and, you. Uh, thank rock you so on. Much. Keep listening. Yeah. Keep listening <laughs> to music. Yeah. Thank you so much. All righty. And we're going to, Mark, we're just going to talk us out with one. Yeah, well, it's about Ray Davis of the Kinks catching the White Stripes live in New Orleans. Thank you, Mark. Brilliant. All right. Well, bye-bye, everyone. Bye. Take care. A couple of weeks ago, we played out in New Orleans, and Ray Davies came to the show. And for the first, and, uh, and we they didn't have a, like nothing was mic'd at the club, and we, we thought, you know, it's not gonna be that great. And then my my tuner didn't work. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna be out of tune all show. And so, hey, Ray Davies is here. Oh God, he's gonna see this show. And I, but I saw like, the first time ever on stage, like after like one song, I looked out and I caught where he was standing and could not stop looking over there. <laughs> I don't know why. I've never done that before. Did you talk to him afterwards? No. Did you know he was coming? No. Oh, I think I smell a rat. Oh, I think I smell a rat. That was Jack and Meg White in conversation with Ira Robbins in 2001, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Devon Powers. Visit her website at devonpowers.com and find Writing the Record in all good bookshops. The hosts are Barney Hoskins, Mark Pringle and Martin Collier, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rock's Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com.